0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com.
1: On this program, Debbie Millman talks with G. Lee about why he hates most advertising. The reason why I hate these ads is because they're not relevant to me. And about why he loves the possibilities for advertising on Facebook, where he works. The reason why I believe in Facebook is that you can create relevant piece of communication because you know how to target people who are supposed to see your advertising. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: If you were in New York City in 2005, you may have seen one of the blank speech bubbles on advertisements throughout the city. And you may even remember some of the countless creative phrases written in by passers-by. This was called The Bubble Project, and it was created by G Lee, who is currently the communication designer at Facebook. G Lee is also a colleague of mine here at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. He's here today to fill in many of the audio bubble stickers I'm going to toss his way in the form of questions. Ji Lee, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Hello, Debbie. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. So, G, you were born in Seoul, Korea, yes. but raised in Brazil. Yes. Quite an unusual combination. When and why did you first move to Sao Paulo?
1: It was 1981. That's when my family moved to Brazil. Seventies were a hard times for Korea. The country was still recovering from the Korean War. The economy was still bad. And my grandparent, who were adventurers, and my, especially my grandfather, who wanted to adventure and go to different places, had a friend who lived in Sao Paulo who were successful. So he took all his unmarried children, went to Brazil in the early 70s and started a business. And then all the married children, which was my mom, decided to follow his footsteps. So it, that was the time when I moved to Brazil and you know, it was really for me a big shock because at the time up to that point I had never seen a western person live I had never tasted western food, it was all about living in a bubble in Korea so it was a, a big shock for me
0: Now, you attended the Colégio Banduranches in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and in my research I discovered that this is a very competitive school. The students are ranked and placed in different classrooms according to the final average grade of the previous year. The students are all college-oriented and regarded as high achievers, helping to build the school's fame and keep up its standards, (laughs) quote-unquote. So what was that experience like for you, coming from a completely foreign environment?
1: Well, Collegio Bandeirantes was later in my years in Brazil. So I had already learned how to speak Portuguese. I had already assimilated Brazilian culture. But the first, I would say, months were a little bit more challenging. I arrived in Brazil. It was like landing on a different planet because all the people that I saw looked different. The smell, the language, the TV programs, everything was different. But I still remember going to the first day at school, and I really didn't know any word in Portuguese. And my uncle, who took me to the first class, taught me one phrase in Portuguese in the car on the way to the school. What was it? He said, may I go to the bathroom oh. in Portuguese, oh. which was extremely strategic and, and smart of him. You know, I don't remember having difficulties because I was 11 years old and people were very friendly, so I just learned playing on the street. And then later on, I went to high school, which was competitive and being part of Asian family, the education is important. So that's how I ended up there.
0: I read an article about you that stated that every move that you've made heralded a new culture, surroundings, and places. And you learned that you had to communicate in the simplest way. And I was wondering if you could elaborate. What do you mean by simple?
1: Because I just couldn't speak the language. I had to use gestures or draw something in the paper and explain what that was. At the time, I thought that was difficult, but I think looking back, I think it had a profound impact on how I do my project and how I approach communication because I love to do things that are universal, that can communicate to as many people as possible. And I think I learned that through going through experience of communicating verbally with different people. So it was always this challenge of communicating but the flip side of that, that I really learned how to go into the essence of the words that I'm trying to communicate and do so in the simplest visual way possible.
0: So do you think that this interest in simplicity fueled your interest in using design as a system of messaging?
1: Definitely so. Growing up, my parents were both interested in arts and music and poetry. So I grew up in a household where art was valued and encouraged. So I think my parents were the first inspiration and motivation for me to pay attention to design and art. But I think my interest specifically in communication came through that experience of jumping from one culture to another.
0: Now, I know that you went to Parsons School of Design but in an interview that I was able to get an advanced copy of from Kevin Finn in his wonderful publication, Open Manifesto, yes. you stated that you originally came to New York to study fine arts and how, when you were a child, you always wanted to become a painter. Picasso and Van Gogh were your childhood idols. So what made you decide to pursue design instead of fine art?
1: You know, I, I just really identify with painters. I thought... They have all this freedom in the world to create whatever they want to create. And I thought, I mean, I was really mesmerized by what they were doing. But then I came to Parsons with fine arts in mind. And I actually went to study uh, one semester of fine arts. And I immediately knew that I didn't really enjoy the process because the program at the time was very conceptual. We spent more time discussing about painting rather than painting. And I also wasn't really inspired by the teachers at the time. And it was also not so encouraging to see the students who were graduating in the finance program really struggling. They were, you know, becoming waiters and construction workers. And they ended up you know, eventually abandoning a lot of their passion because they were struggling so much financially. And I knew that my parents were sacrificing a lot you know, they're not rich, and they were working hard and paying for this really, really high tuition. And I felt like I needed to at least take care of myself when I graduated. So I started looking into different programs. But the nice thing about being in the campus that you saw a lot of different students, you know, walking around with their projects. And I got drawn into graphic design, because I saw lots of cool projects, interesting projects. And I saw that a lot of the graphic design projects were as artistic and conceptual as some of the painting that, you know, I liked. So that's when I decided to move to a communication design slash graphic design program at Parsons.
0: So two of the projects you started at school, the personal projects or assignments, have since been published as books, I want to talk about the first, which you began in a sophomore typography class, Word as Image. In your Creative Mornings talk, you state that this project was your typical Charles Nix, Cooper Union typography, Herb Blue Ballon type project, where you take elements within a word to make an image. What made you decide to continue forth with this effort? Because from what I understand in looking at some of your current work, you're still doing these words as images, so words that have some type of image that relates to the word embedded in the word or in the image. It's sort of a double entendre of looking at things in two different ways. What makes you continue doing these word puzzles?
1: When I first got the assignment from... My professor at the time, Charles Nix, who taught everything that I know about typography, he come from the Cooper Union tradition of really uh, looking at typography as a conceptual way of expressing an idea. And, you know, this, is, this was a, a typical typography assignment for sophomore students. And I still remember getting this assignment. And I think we were supposed to come up with five of those. And I didn't want to do the typical ones like jump or fall you know, because that's easy. Like, anybody can come up with that. So I wanted to challenge yeah, myself. Yeah, to come up, an- anybody, right? just
0: anybody could come up with that stuff.
1: It's a lot easier, right? So I really challenged myself to come up with something that is a little bit more unique. So I did about five of those. I think it included uh, things like ill, that when you turn the word I-L-L, it looks like I is laying on top of the bed.
0: My two favorites are moon and clock.
1: Thank you. Moon, I think that came out of, from that original assignment as well. So the second O in moon looks like the
0: moon to the earth in terms of Correct. perspective for Correct. our listeners that yeah. might want to envision it. And the clock has the O with the L inside as the hands of the clock, which is just magnificent.
1: For me, it was like solving a puzzle. And the challenge is really simple. Uh, You cannot add any external element to the word. So the challenge is to take the word like moon and then only working with the typographic element, trying to visualize the meaning behind that word. It sounds simple, but actually, if you're trying to come up with a complex word, it can be very challenging. And so for me, the fun part which I always go back to, which is having fun with my project, was to crack a complex word. And it was addictive. So I did five, and then I loved it so much that I kept doing it, and it became my insomnia project. Whenever I had an insomnia, I would try to crack a word. So like, okay, I will think about a word like racism or xenophobia, how can I visualize the idea behind that? And I would just think about that for minutes, sometimes hours. And it became sort of lifelong obsession. And I think four years ago, I realized I had about 100 of those. And I went after a publisher, and it was published as a book. And then we also animated each word. So it became iPad, book, and etc. So your first
0: job out of school was at Frankfurt Ballkind, And from what I understand you had the job at the time of your senior show, but at your senior show, Stefan Sagmeister saw your portfolio and offered you a job which you had to turn down.
1: Yes, yes. And he was at the time already a very famous designer. He had his famous AIGA poster with his chest carved, carved and yeah. et cetera. He was he was you know one of the best designers out there. And I was very honored that Stefan came to the senior show. We all had a little our little booth, and we put all our projects together. And we were all nervous standing there to speak to a potential employer, and etc. And Stefan, who is this tall man, came and you know introduced himself. And were, you, were your knees shaking? Yeah, I was. I was nervous because it can be very intimidating. And he's famous, and he's tall, and he's Austrian, and his accent and. But he was very nice, and you know, he said he really likes to work, and he would love to uh, you know, invite me to come over to his studio. At the time, I had already accepted the job as a junior graphic designer at a design studio, Frankfurt-Baukine, which it doesn't exist anymore, but at the time was one of the most progressive corporate design studios. There were a lot of amazing designers, as you know. A it's lot
0: of, an extraordinary group yeah, of people that have gone through that studio. Amazing,
1: amazing. And I just liked the idea of working with so many talented people. So I had already accepted the job when I went to see Stefan. And he sort of hinted, would you like to work here with me? And and I said, well, I, I would love to, but I already accepted the job at Frankfurt Balkan, which he took it very graciously and he understood. And, you know, even then he took me under his wing and he became... So sort of a lifelong mentor for me. I owe so much to Stefan. He's the one who really gave me the encouragement to continue with the Bubble Project when I started. You know, he's the one who introduced me to um, my first important conference as a speaker at Design in Dava in South Africa. And he's been amazing. And I think looking back, you know, I think it was good that I didn't end up working for Stefan because it's a small studio, you know, I think you probably get a lot of influence working with them. And I think working in a big place like uh, Frankfurt Balkan, I was able to be exposed to a lot of different ideas, to meet a lot of people. So it's a fun story, and uh, I'm really happy about how things turned around. So you then went to
0: another design firm, Sang Seymour Design. You said you loved it there, but wanted to do something conceptual and began to think about advertising. And that really struck me because I was wondering... What made you think at the time that advertising was more conceptual?
1: I think that thought came really when I was in Brazil. Brazil is one of the best countries in terms of creating some of the most innovative, funny TV commercials. The advertising folks in Brazil, they are like celebrities. People like Austin Oliveto are treated like celebrities in Brazil. That's how powerful advertising is. And I remember... Growing up, watching some of these amazing TV commercials in Brazil and thinking, wow, this is like a different type of art form. You can, in 30 seconds, communicate something simple to millions of people. So I thought that was very interesting. And then, you know, I love doing design work. I did logos and museum catalogs and love the craftsmanship aspect of the, the project, but I really was driven more towards the the conceptual part. Advertising seemed to me like the next step. So that's when I first thought about advertising.
0: So in the meantime, things began to happen that you didn't really expect. You also went to see Abbott Miller, and this was before he was at Pentagram and was working with his wife Ellen Lupton at Design Writing Research and saw another project that you had done while you were at Parsons, which was a 3D alphabet. Turns out he was writing a book on dimensional typography. And he hired you to do some freelance work. And when the book came out, the New York Times wrote a piece for it that Lori Anderson saw as a judge for Saatchi and Saatchi's World Changing Ideas Award, which then got the attention of Bob Isherwood, the executive director of Saatchi and Saatchi, who then offered you a job. That's right. It's a wonderful example of one thing leading to another, leading to another, which leads you right here where you are today. I know. This wonderful circuitous arc that a life can take. Um, And you were at Saatchi for four years. You worked on Cheerios and some dandruff shampoo. And I read that while you loved creating concepts and TV campaigns, you realized that making great conceptual work there was not going to be as easy as you thought. And I wanted to know what gave you the idea that it was ever going to be easy.
1: I didn't know because I only saw great advertising growing up in Brazil. And, you know, you get exposed to great advertising looking at annuals and the pieces that win awards. So since I had never worked at an ad agency, I thought that was the norm, that you go to these agencies and you come up with great ideas and you shoot, you know, the TV spot and everybody gets to see that. <laughs> Obviously, I was naive about that. And when I started at the agency was, you know, in the 90s, it was the height of the political correctness. So people didn't really take risk, especially big advertisers and big brands didn't want to take risk and they would test everything. And they would make sure that nothing is offensive, you know, nothing can be provocative and etc. So and in the end, what you end up is the uh, this sort of pleasing everyone piece of communication that is really boring and uninteresting, which is going so much against the idea of advertising, which has to be disruptive and add something to you. So I tried it for about four years, and I just realized it was much harder than just my good intention because the forces were much greater. So I was getting increasingly frustrated as a creative person who wanted to create something. And at the same time, I was becoming very comfortable. I had my own, you know, window office. They were paying me well. I didn't have to work that hard. So I saw that I could get into a path where I get comfortable and I stopped caring about the work itself. I saw myself going in the path. So I had to make a decision that, okay, if I depend on the client and the agency folks, I'm not going to be able to produce anything that means something to me. So I felt bad in both sides as a creator who are making this stuff and as a consumer who is receiving this stuff. And I wanted to do something that could simply change the way people perceive advertising. That's how the Talk Bubble project came out.
0: So you started the Bubble project with $3,000. So it was sort of a self-funded initiative. How would you describe the Bubble project for listeners that might not have seen any of the bubbles around the world or heard about it before?
1: I was working with a client at the time, General Mills, and they wanted to do this sort of PSA campaign to promote healthy eating between parents and children. So I presented this idea of, well, what if you use speech bubble, that the children would write something in the refrigerator, and then parents would come back and write something back about food eating and the things in the refrigerator, which I thought would be a fun, inter- interactive way of parents and children, you know, talking to each other. They liked the, the idea, but didn't buy the idea. You know, I went through that so many times, and I said, okay, this time I'm going to just take an idea and then just make it myself. So I thought, what if I put that speech bubble on top of an advertisement on the street? And I knew that if I left it empty, eventually somebody would write it. So I just took $3,000, went to a, a printer in Chinatown, and then it printed a bunch and thirty thousand
0: stickers. Yeah. And just started putting them on advertisements Every all over advertisement. the city. Which is actually illegal, right?
1: It is it is absolutely illegal. And I got into trouble for that. I received tickets, I received threatening letters from media companies. But there was also something a little bit thrilling of doing something that is slightly illegal. It was like me being adolescent, you know, jumping off the wall and doing something I'm not supposed to do. That was the thrilling part. I knew that it wasn't something so bad, like the, you know, paint graffiti that permanently damaged the wall. This was removable, so I knew it wasn't something too bad.
0: So essentially, you were harnessing the public to make these statements I also was able to get a copy of your book that came out called The Bubble Project. And you organized the book into different sections that feature a collection of the bubbles, the filled in by the public bubbles, regarding social commentary, media and fashion, sex and drugs, politics and religion, art and philosophy – and humor, did you have a specific category that you liked seeing any more than the others?
1: I like all of them for different reasons. And I like every single writing that I saw on the street. And there were a lot of, I would say 70% of writing were about pussy and faggot and penis. There were a <laughs> lot of sexual you know, expressions. And although they were not, in my opinion, intelligent uh, uh, expression, I thought it was valid that they, the public, the people on the street, would use it as a platform to express themselves. And I really love the fact that advertisements, as we know, are usually one-way monologue from the corporation to the public. They're just basically screaming message that we may like or not. But with this sticker, it instantly transformed that into a dialogue. It gave the public a chance to speak talk back at advertising. So in my opinion, every expression was valid as long as they went up there and with the pen wrote something.
0: There's a paragraph in your book that I'd like to read because I thought it was a wonderful description of the result you were trying to Create The Bubble Project is the counterattack. The bubbles are the ammunition once placed on ads. These stickers transform the corporate monologue into a public dialogue, encouraging anyone to fill them in with any expression free from censorship. More bubbles mean more freed spaces, more sharing of personal thoughts, more reactions to current events, and most importantly, more imagination and fun.
1: That sounds serious. Did you ever put any bubbles on any of your own ads? I didn't because I wasn't able to produce any ads. I wish I was. But I saw a lot of uh, my friends who were advertising. They were producing ads, and I put a lot of those stickers on top of their ads. And ironically, agencies started calling me because they wanted to offer me a job because I was basically vandalizing the ads. But, you know, like... I said that with a with a with a smile, but I really in my heart, I believe that those stickers actually help the ads because with the stickers, people look at more at the ads and it's an invitation for open communication so i don 't think I was destroying the ads I was helping the ads.
0: I was really um, fascinated by some of the cultural commentary that came up on some ads that were pretty. Innocuous. There was a Will Smith iRobot ad that somebody wrote in the bubble, shut up and shop. Mm. On a Bruce Almighty, the movie ad, it said, we're fucked. Yes, we are. On an AT&T ad, it said, save the earth, save the earth. And then for a TV show that I think was on for about two or three episodes, the bubble read... Why think about your life when you can watch us? So between that project and some of your commissioned illustration projects, it seems to me that you have a very specific agenda of sort of turning the lens on our consumption and our rituals of buying back on ourselves to really examine why we do the things that we do, whether it be in advertising or popular culture. Would you agree with that?
1: I think so. One of my favorite things is to hack or hijack things. And I think a lot of artists use that technique. You know, Picasso was a great hijacker. Banks is a great hijacker. Richard Prince. Richard Prince is a great hijacker. So taking things that already exist... And then just changing something different about it that completely changed the meaning that you can take it for your purpose. And that's really powerful because then, you know, you're already playing with the meaning that already exists. And I think I use that especially in illustration. But I think another thing that I love to do is I use a power of humor because humor is universal and people generally relate to humor And I think when you smile at looking at something, it's a great beginning of something. Because when you smile, your barriers go down and you become more susceptible to the message. So, yes, the hijacking and changing the meaning using the humor is some things that I love to do.
0: It's funny, as I was looking at your illustrations, I felt like there was a real common denominator with your illustration work that you're commissioned to do and some of your personal projects, which are completely self-generated, and there was this overlap of things being hijacked. So the logos are hijacking the consumers Mm. or the bubbles are hijacking the ads and was wondering if that was something that was intentional for you.
1: I am, I think, lazy. (laughs) I think that is the best answer because it's so much more work to create something out of nothing. And it's there are people who do that, artists who create something they have never seen before. It's non-referential. It's just beautiful. I love to play with ideas and quick ideas and I love to just do things in a quick way. That's the way I work. And there's nothing better than hijacking something. And I think on my personal projects, I experiment with both hijacking and doing something completely new that doesn't really refer to anything. But, you know, when you have two days, oftentimes that's the time you have to create illustration for the New York Times or Time magazine. Then it's a lot harder to try to come up with a whole new meaning. So I ended up taking something that already exists and then do something different with it.
0: So you gave advertising one more shot after your Saatchi and Saatchi experience, and that was with David Droga at Droga 5, where one of your most recognizable public projects came to fruition, which was the design and advertising of the new museum's launch on the Bowery in New York City, wherein you hijacked a Calvin Klein ad. You want to describe that for our listeners?
1: Yes. Uh, So we're going back a little bit about Droga 5. It was a really magical time because it was the beginning of the agency. So we You were employee number 7, something right? Something like that. Yeah, I was one of the first employees. So it was chaotic. It was, you know, startup. And I love that environment where there's chaos Then you know, nobody knows what they're doing and then, like, things come out of that chaos. And New Museum was one of those projects where we were one of the agencies who were invited to pitch for the account and uh, we actually thought well the most interesting thing for the launch is the building itself because people come to the opening because they want to look at the building they want to see what how the the building looks from the inside so we started from the building because it had such a unique shape and we took that as an icon and we you know basically with a very little budget we want we created lots of things on the streets of New York And then the biggest thing was the the Calvin Klein billboard, which you mentioned. We obviously worked with Calvin Klein, who was a corporate sponsor for the museum. And then we devised a plan, okay, how can we hijack this ad? So we dripped a series of pink paint over the famous Calvin Klein billboard on Houston Street, which tend to be often very provocative because they're giant naked bodies, right? That happened under successions of weeks. And, so uh, more and more pink exactly. paint is
0: stripping down the
1: naked bodies. Exactly. So people started to notice that, and some people thought it was vandalism, and etc. And then in the end, we revealed with the shape, the shape was the only part which paint didn't touch. And then we revealed the final message of the opening.
0: And then Robert Wong
1: calls you. All
0: the success with the new museum launch and the wonderful work that you did at Droga 5, and then you get a call from Robert Wong at Google. Come to the Google Creative Lab. How long did you think about whether or not to do that?
1: I didn't even consider working for Google because I didn't know that there was a job for a creative person like myself. I thought, you know, I'm going to be in advertising and... You know this is good, but also there was a part of me that I wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful than selling stuff. So Robert, he offered me a job, and I I knew right away that I wanted to be part of it. Uh, I had worked at Drugify for three years, which was amazing. I mean, I learned so much there. I was able to produce great projects like the New Museum and the um, TAP project, which was also very meaningful. But I was ready to do something new after doing seven years in advertising, and I thought there was something interesting about working for a company that I actually believed in and being part of the in-house creative force. So that's when I joined uh, Google Creative Lab and Robert Wong.
0: So when you say it was a company that you believe in, was it because essentially what they're offering is free, free searching and free maps and so forth? Was that what you
1: believed in? the free stuff, but also, you know, making the information free and accessible for the world. And there was a big ethos about, you know, don't be evil at the time. And it was all about creating something positive to the world using technology. And all that stuff felt very appealing to me. I really went in there with the intent of having a positive impact in the world through technology through so many products that uh, Google creates.
0: So, I read an interview wherein you admitted that while the creative methodologies you used in advertising agencies were similar to what you were doing at Google, it was the speed that Google works that set it apart from traditional agencies. And I was wondering if you could give some examples of how quickly you worked and produced things there.
1: Thinking back, I don't think that Google was fast. I think the advertising agencies were slow, you know? (laughs) Because that's the speed in which things should move because that's how the world moves around, you know? Like nowadays you see Kim Kardashian thing, you know, everywhere in the world. Like three minutes later, you see memes being generated around that. The world goes really fast. And I think some of the big agencies are just starting to adjust to that Concept. And when you're shooting a TV commercial, uh, you need like three months or four months. You know, there's a pre-production and all that stuff needs to do. And sometimes that's just not fast enough. So I think when I came to Google, you know, I saw, okay, that's the way things should be done, right? Which means smaller groups of people, not like 50 people. There were small groups of people building things experimenting and launching stuff.
0: Do you think that that speed to market infringes creativity or do you think that it inspires it?
1: I think it depends. You know, if you want to write a novel, I mean obviously you need time to develop an idea and write something. So I think it depends, but for me I love the pressure of time. You know, if I have a deadline of 3 months to do something, I usually put it off. Until two months and a half, in the like, last two weeks, I'm going to do something. <laughs> I think that's how most of the creative end up working. So when there is a, a pressure of the time, a deadline, that next week you've got to build something, there's no time for people to add opinion that they end up usually adding because they feel like they have to say something. There's no time to overthink stuff. They just You've got to make something, and you have to make something fast. And I love that. And I think in those times, you can actually come up with some of the best ideas and make it happen.
0: So you spent what you've referred to as three wonderful years at the Google Creative Lab and then went to Facebook. And I read that when you first went to Facebook, you declared that Facebook was the defining medium of our time. Big, bold statement, G.
1: Do you still believe that? Absolutely. So tell me why. It's just the fact that, you know, over one billion people spend a lot of time looking at Facebook, you know. They come to Facebook newsfeed to look at the latest news from the families and friends. That's how they discover breaking news. That's how they look at ads. It's the most defining medium and channel because there are a lot of people spending a lot of time in this space. So what exactly do you do at Facebook? So I first joined Facebook nearly four years ago and I had to move to California to be part of the product marketing team, which, you know, when Facebook launches a new product, like Timeline at the time was Timeline, my role was to take that product and market it by creating videos or web pages or experience to users of Facebook, Communicate what is intent behind the timeline, why we created that. Which was sort of the things that we did at Google, and that's why I think they were interested in hiring me. So I did that for about one year, and I really missed New York because I was in California, I was all by myself, and I wanted to come back to New York. And there was a role in New York office Facebook has also an office in New York in Astor Place that was dealing with consumer marketing. So when You know, big brands are doing marketing on Facebook. This group of people would work together with the brand and the advertising agencies to create the best kind of advertising on Facebook. So I thought, okay, this is something that I'm also familiar. I've done it in the past. So I applied for the role, and uh, since then I've been doing uh, a lot of the consumer marketing. I work with big CPG brands, and I work a lot with agencies. And to try to encourage them to think about Facebook as a medium. When you think about Facebook as a medium, this small little piece of device that sits on your phone, that you're creating a uh, two-by-two piece of either video or, or image that goes by so quickly on your thumb, that's for sure is going to be very different than watching a television or looking at a print advertising. And I think we're just beginning to see the creative potential behind that.
0: I read when you were working at Saatchi that you became not only ashamed of the work that you were doing, but ashamed of the work that the advertising community was making, the work that you saw around you. How is it different at Facebook?
1: Well, essentially, I think most of people hate advertising, including myself. I hate probably 99% of advertising that I see. The reason why I hate these ads is because they're not relevant to me. The reason why I believe in Facebook is that you can create relevant piece of communication because you know how to target people who are the right group of people who are supposed to see your advertising. You know, Facebook spends a lot of time and energy to make newsfeed the best experience possible. We see newsfeed as the most powerful personalized newspaper and ads should be like that, right? I want to talk a
0: little bit more about some of your personal projects. Um I understand that you're usually in the midst of anywhere between six and eight personal projects at the same time. Some that are for short term, some medium, some long term. And in your Creative Mornings talk someone asked you a question, and they asked if anything suffers in your personal life via all the personal projects. And you responded with an emphatic no, on the contrary, and stated that you're a very restless person, that you're impatient. And if you didn't work on personal projects, you'd be a drug addict, (laughs) manic, depressive, and miserable, and that your personal projects have saved you. By doing all of these personal projects, you're doing things that are healthy and positive and Working with your mind and all of this has kept you from self-destruction and killing yourself. Wow. <laughs> so my question is,
1: really? <laughs> yes, a lot of those things are true. I'm very restless. I have tendencies for addictions. You know, I love drinking and stuff like that. And I, I love to have fun. And the reason why I do personal project, there's only one reason, which is it's fun to do. You know, all the things like going out and drinking with friends and etc. I do that because it's fun to do. And if I can only find most of the fun going out and partying, I think probably I'll be addicted and all that stuff, which I'm not, because a big part of the fun comes from doing these personal projects. When I did the bubble project, then I saw with something that I did, having to spend not as much money, and I did everything from ideation and financing and production and distribution and pr all the stuff I realize one person can actually create something that can have a big impact in the world and there is a huge reward in doing that and I today I make sure that I have both the professional project that I do at facebook and the magazine illustration but also something which is just mine you know that's something that's coming from the the inner voice. The purity of just yeah. being creative and free. Just having fun. Something that, you know, this little child in me that wants to say something, want to scream, I think I can channel those inner child in me through my personal project. And that's hugely valuable to me.
0: One of the things that I read in my research for today's show that's really stayed with me is a quote that you made about creativity, and you stated that creativity is not defined by the profession or the nature of the work you do. Creativity is what defines us as human, the capacity to see things with different eyes and from different perspectives. And I think that that's one of the things I love most about your personal projects, in particular the wordless web, which is, I guess, a program that you created, a bookmarklet that... Takes all the words off of a site, and all you're left with is the images and the sort of marvelous, spooky kind of negative space that happens. And then, my absolute favorite of all of your personal projects are the upside down installations, oh, where you. you essentially take a room, miniaturize it to, I guess, about 12 inches by 12 mm-hmm. inches and then place it on the ceiling of another room. Mm -hmm. And it immediately changes your perspective and sense of time and space and size. What are you currently working on now for some of your personal projects?
1: So there are a couple of things that I'm working right now. Sometimes I work on very silly things. Sometimes I work on artistic stuff. I'm working on a web app that uh, you can sort of rate the tiny profile pictures of people. There's something interesting about this notion where our tiny profile picture is how the rest of the world perceive us as human. I say it's a silly thing, but it's a social experiment. So as a person, you can put your profile picture and see which one performs the best. So that's one of the projects. I'm working on another one, which is you know, going back to the, the bubble project, I would like to make an online version where you can actually slap a bubble stickers anywhere on the web and write something and then sharing. I'm, I'm working with that with a friend of mine, a developer, Rob O'Rourke, who is, I've never met. He's in England, and uh, he's a developer. So working on that. And then another thing I'm working on is uh, I want to make a series of instruction videos for the most obvious things, like how to open a door, <laughs> how to clap your hands. So there are several things that I'm working on.
0: Oh, gee, thank you so much for all of your wonderful, inspiring personal projects. They've really inspired me. Design Matters is a personal project. So thank
1: you for helping me
0: realize that. Thank you. To find out more about Gee Lee and all of his personal projects, go to his website, pleaseenjoy.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.